0: Associate producer Caroline Owens here. Please note that this episode does contain profane language. As always, thanks for listening.
1: Hey, Chris.
2: Hey, Kara. How are you?
1: I'm doing all right, doing all right. Kicking through uh, a mountain of work as usual. A mountain of
2: work? A
1: mountain of work. Look at the whiteboard to-do list back there.
2: I know, I'm just looking about my literal mountain of work on my table.
1: This <laughs> true is behind you.
2: <laughs> uh huh.
1: Threatening well, to topple over.
2: Well, what are we doing today? We're doing a Sausage of Science.
1: Hackademics.
2: Podcast interview, are we not?
1: We are, we're gonna have Dr. Kate Clancy on the show today. Where's she from? She is from the University of Illinois, uh, Urbana-Champaign.
2: She does amazing reproductive health work, but she's also the first author on the SAFE-13 study that came out in PLOS One in 2013. And one of the co-authors would be American anthropologist piece that Robin Nelson, one of our previous guests, was first author on few years later uh, regarding sexual harassment in the sciences.
1: Yeah, it's another one of those topics that... It is gaining a lot of steam as a topic of conversation, but nowhere near enough, I think, in how seriously we need to take it and how serious the level of change needs to be to actually see improvement in, in environments, workplace environments.
2: You know, I'm, I'm really heartened because I think that her efforts and their their efforts, also Katie Hind, who's been on the podcast, and Julian Rutherford, who's another co-author in the paper, who we should get on the podcast. We've mentioned this before, But I think, you know, their efforts are directly responsible, not just for the cultural zeitgeist around sexual harassment in the sciences policy proposal in the U.S. uh, House of Congress that was proposed by Eddie Bernice. It's amazing stuff.
1: Yeah, no, it's wonderful. I'm super excited to have her on. So let's bring in Dr. Kate Clancy. Awesome. So... Kate, welcome on the show, and thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to join us today.
0: No problem. Thanks for having me.
1: And so one of the things that I think a lot of people know you for is the SAFE-13 study. And as we had talked about, a lot of our listeners are perhaps newer in the field, and they actually might not be familiar with SAFE-13 at this point. Mm -hmm. And so I thought as just a bit of a segue to get into this topic, if you could tell us what that study was, and then also what became like that final impetus to push you and your co-authors to like do the research and publish the work.
0: Sure, so, um, so the safe collaboration is uh, me along with Robin Nelson who's at Santa Clara University, Katie Hind at ASU, and Julian Rutherford who's at University of Illinois Chicago. And uh, the four of us had known each other for a long time before doing this work. And we're, you know, sort of part of a support network in a lot of ways. Like as all junior female academics, we did a lot of chatting from time to time about our lived experiences in the field and elsewhere. And so that's sort of how we got connected. The way that the project started was that I had an interaction with a dear friend and colleague who was a few years junior than me, or is still a few years junior to me. And she wasn't done with her dissertation. And it's, you know, it was about time for it to be done, in my opinion, at least. And so I was teasing her about it a little bit. And I was like, hey, you know, what's going to get you done? Because I really want you to get on the job market and get a job. And I want us to be on this tenure track together. And she said, you know, Kate, I'd love to, but I I was sexually assaulted in the field. And every time I look at my data, that's all that I can think about. And And she walked me through in this very generous and patient and loving way, the experience that she had in the field, but not only the experience she had, but the re-traumatization she experienced when she actually tried to do something about it. She tried reporting at her field site. Nothing came of that. She tried reporting to her advisor. And um, I think perhaps one of the most hurtful things that happened was when her advisor was like, I'm so sorry this happened to you, but you know, if you take this any further, we're probably going to lose access to that field site and all that data. So it was this real moment of um, placing data over a human being. And that experience and another colleague who also disclosed to me her harassment experiences in the field were such that I, I reached out to both of these folks and I said, would you be willing to share pseudonymous accounts of what happened to you at the time I was writing for Scientific American? So they both constructed sort of in their own way, in a way that made them feel powerful, but kept them safe. They wrote accounts of their experiences and I shared them on my blog and it created this giant conversation. This was back in 2012, a really big conversation in the field. A lot of people writing me, a lot of people saying really awful things too, about how these are just two really unique events. And of course, everything's fine. A lot of people saying, obviously something very different from that, that this is very, very common. And it led to more writing and it led to more attention until I was invited by two graduate students at the time, who now are obviously more senior than that, Elsane and Heather Shattuck-Heidorn. They invited me to give a talk at their ethics symposium that they were going to be running at the AAPA in 2013. And so, you know, I wrote an abstract for that invited symposium. And academics who are listening are familiar with the fact that when you write an invited abstract... It usually just gets accepted, mm-hmm. and mine did not get accepted. I got pushback from the person who was coordinating abstracts at the time because I didn't have anything empirical in my, you know, in my abstract. And basically, that back and forth made me really mad. And so I was just like, "Well, if you're, ex- we allowed to swear in this podcast?" Oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. So I was just like, "Well, fuck you." Then I guess I need to go do a survey. And so I spent a really long time. Getting as immersed in the organizational psych literature as possible because that's that's where most of this research is. I consulted with a number of survey methods experts at my institution and qualitative experts at my institution. And knowing that there's no way I could do this alone, I reached out to other amazing scholars in the field and said, Will you do this with me? And, And that's sort of how Safe was born, is that. I knew that Robin, Katie, and Julianne would be really great folks to work with on this because we all have a vested interest in the topic and different types of expertise that I think we could bring to bear on the project. And we decided to, at first, survey bioanth folks. And just to kind of wrap up the story because I'm taking so long, we first surveyed the bioanth folks, but then a journalist got wind of what we were doing. And there was so much interest once our preliminary results that were just about biological anthropology were disseminated because we got us there was a, a brief story in science magazine about it then we decided to do a second wave of the survey where we opened it up to all the field sciences so we got a, no, a number of additional respondents because of that so we ended up with over 600 respondents in that survey and we and I conducted interviews of I believe 26 folks from that survey as well to add a qualitative element and then we have two papers from it the quantitative paper is from is 2014 and then the qualitative paper is 2017.
1: And then with the 600 respondents, that was for fields outside of bioanth, correct?
0: That was for everybody.
1: Do you have an estimate of how many different fields were included in that 600?
0: It's in the paper, so I don't remember offhand, but we do, we do say, I mean, it's, it's, it's a long tail. The majority of, of the folks in the survey are definitely anthropologists, mm-hmm. and probably mm-hmm. primarily biological anthropologists, but we have a pretty hefty minority of archaeologists, and then the rest of that long tail, that long distribution, is sort of everybody else. We have some zoology, geology, geography, entomology, ecology, and evolution. You know, like a bunch of those types that were represented.
2: And that paper is open access and plus One, so we'll link that, and that'll be available for, for anyone to
0: mm-hmm.
2: check yeah. into that.
0: All of my publications so far in this area are open access, intentionally.
2: So you've been working in policy lately, and I know we had some back and forth about what we do at our professional society level and how effective that is, but you also are a co-author on this National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine report on sexual harassment of women, and it's great. I've seen some maybe results from this at the policy level. I don't know how, how much they're connected. So I wanted to ask you, about the process of putting that together, who you worked with, and what the impact of that has been or where it's going.
0: Sure. So the process for that was pretty cool, actually. I do think my understanding is that the SAFE survey and the attention that went towards looking at sexual harassment in the sciences was a real motivator for for deciding to even do this report in the first place, which is pretty cool to see anthropology having an impact on the wider world. What happened first is they convened a panel to first decide, is this, like the National Academies convened a panel of experts to say, is this something worth studying to begin with? So that's the, the way they do reports. is sort of this two-stage thing. First, they get a bunch of people together and they say, is this an important topic? Is this something we should devote resources to? Then they have to spend, if they decide the answer is yes, They have to spend a very long time doing two things, raising money, because they don't actually have the funding to do it themselves. They are funded by other places. So raising money from not just NIH and NSF, but a bunch of other private foundations. And then obviously figuring out how to reach out to and create a committee that is going to co-author that report. And then that process is two years long of meeting several times a year in person with both a public and a private component to each of the meetings. So the, pro- the public components are usually these panels of experts talking about different elements of things that we suspect we're going to want to include in the report. And then the private is usually us debriefing and talking about some of that stuff. And towards the end of that two-year period, obviously we start working with, we work with a writer, with somebody, with a writer that NAS, that the National Academies brings in. And we actually record all of our conversations and we use all of those conversations, all of our notes all of the papers that we bring to bear on this to start to construct a basic outline and some of the basic writing. Um, I know that for our report, there's some variation in how much um, the committee actually plays a hand in really doing all of the writing. For our committee, especially those of us with expertise in the area who not just were interested parties, but people who were who have published in this area, we took a special interest in actually doing the writing of the report And so, you know, that document really does reflect the the actual writing of the experts of the committee. And so by June 2018 is when the report fully came out. The main thing I would say in terms of the findings that I think is, especially because you're asking about policy to point out, is that the main points of the report that we make are that sexual harassment is actually largely gender harassment. So we need to do a better job making that clear to people that gender harassment, whether or not it even meets the legal standard, that gender harassment, which is more sexist behavior, more put downs, things like that, is a much greater problem and is much more pervasive than more sexual forms of harassment. And in fact, often leads to worse work consequences. The next is that the legal system is completely inadequate to solve this problem, and that policy is not actually going to solve this problem. And then the third is that leadership and culture change is what we do need to start thinking about in terms of forming better solutions. I
2: just want to highlight piece that I noted in there that sort of, I guess, gets to what you're saying, which is that academia has the second highest rate of sexual harassment after the military. And so it does make a lot of sense that policy is not going to Affect change in academia. So your recommendations in that report really go to the heart of some of the efforts I know you've been involved in with 21st century scientists and other things like across the board. It's not just in sexual harassment, but I really love the piece I got of sort of addressing the hierarchical power disparity between faculty and mentors and mentees, things of this nature, where. Power starts. So, there's a lot of culture change there that will be of extraordinary benefit across the board in in creating a more representative and diverse workplace.
1: So, part of that report is you lay out, I think it's something like 14 recommendations, some really wonderful recommendations for all sorts of manners of trying to address this issue. One I want to come back to, which is the civility, because I know you're about to run a workshop on that. But other than that, I kind of want to talk about different levels of advice, uh, because we want this to be like super practical and useful for people listening to this episode. One, what advice might you have for somebody who is experiencing harassment? Who should they go to? Who should they talk to if they are comfortable doing so? How to even go about that? Things they might want to try to keep in mind, even though it can be really hard to keep those things in mind when you're going through this.
0: You're not gonna like my answer because it's very cynical. But really, when someone comes to me and is experiencing harassment, rather than me usually having anything to tell them in terms of what they should do, there are a number of questions to consider. So the first is, what power do you have relative to the person who's causing you harm? The next is, what is the nature of the harassment and how easy is it to document? Another is, how many other people have witnessed this harassment. Another would be, what have you seen when other people have reported your harassment? Do they have a positive experience where their experience is centered and honored and respected? Or are they retaliated against? And I would just ask about the general climate of where you're at. Are you the kind of place where somebody would mock you for daring to say that you don't like something or in a place where someone would say, oh, wow, thank you for that feedback. I'm so glad you told me about the way that I said that and how you didn't like it. I'm going to try to be better next time, right? Like, so many of us work in workplaces that have Title IX policies, and many of us work at institutions that have, in an effort to comply with Title IX have what I think is a pretty screwed up definition of mandatory reporting, which is basically if you tell anybody about what happened to you, they are mandated to tell the Title IX office about this conversation. So the first thing I'd say is find out what your mandatory reporting guidelines are at your institution. Probably they are too broad, and probably what that means is there's almost no one you can talk to without it immediately being passed up the chain. Mm -hmm. So that is a frustrating and demoralizing thing, right? Because what that means is you have this thing that happened to you and who do you talk to about it? Because mandatory reporting means that if you try to tell anybody, you don't get to just have a conversation where you say, wow, this thing happened and I'm still trying to sort out how I feel about it. And I think it was bad, but I don't know. And I just want to talk to somebody. There is no room for that conversation the way most universities interpret Title IX. That's a real problem. That said, a lot of institutions now have already things in place to allow you to have those conversations confidentially. If you have a women's center, if you have an LGBTQ center, if you have an ombudsperson, um, or if you have a counseling center, those are all folks, double check when you ask, (laughs) when you talk to them first, but those usually are all folks that, that can be confidential. So you can go talk to them and say, I had this experience, I don't know how I feel about it, I'm not even sure if I'd call it harassment, I just want to talk it through with somebody. You know, you can have that conversation first before someone decides to escalate and formalize and turn it into something you might not want yet. So that's the very first thing. The thing is, though, is you may not be in a workplace where that's easily accessible to you, or you may not be in a place where mentally you're like, "Oh yes, I love the idea of making an appointment with a stranger, and then three weeks from now finally getting to talk about this." Right. So at the end of the day, my advice for someone who's dealing with harassment is, the system is really broken. The chances are good you're not in a system that's going to help you all that much, and so. Do all the things I've said in terms of trying to find the support you need to help you decide what you want to do with this information and this experience. But in the meantime, document the crap out of it. Write down every time something happens and email it to yourself or Mm. use some kind of system. Write it down and date it. Like keep some way of keeping track of every single time these things are happening and figure out what you need to do to create a support system. Even if these are not people you're telling What's happening to you because they're all people that could mandatory report you at least are creating a posse you know try to find friends try to create that system
2: so for for i'm guessing given your public um advocacy you've heard a lot of these stories you've become a person people turn to um so I have a couple questions. Advice for those of us who also uh, become trusted people that students can turn to, but also for you—that's a lot to carry, and and everyone's psychological well-being and best practices for how we support and hold all of this.
0: So one is therapy is great and I see an amazing uh, feminist psychologist with a trauma-informed background and that is really helpful for me and I have been over the last couple of years very open about the fact that that is something that I do and it's wonderful and important for me and I highly encourage other folks to find people that they can talk to in terms of other ways that I and I obviously have the financial means to do that. Um, that's not something everyone has the financial means to do because my insurance does not cover it. The other thing is that both our research, uh, like the Nelson et al. 2017 paper, or Safe Two, as we sometimes call it, as well as if you if you happen to really get in the weeds with that National Academies report and read the appendices, you'll see one of the appendices is an additional qualitative study of another 40 female faculty members and their experiences with harassment. One of the big findings from that study is that one of the things that's really healing, and again, this is something that we found in our work as well, that's really healing for people who have survived harassment or encountered harassment is figuring out how to help the next generation. Mm -hmm. So that's a really healing, helpful thing. If there are ways that you can say, how can I not pass this on? How can I make things better? How can I get involved in inclusion and equity initiatives? Um, Making room for that in your life is very healing. And so I know a lot of people who that's been great for, including myself
1: with the advice that you gave about experiencing harassment, particularly at a university, because like you said, there are these very strict rules or very loose definitions. Uh, I think a lot of people view harassment, either during field work or conferences, much more murky, because you're not necessarily aware of which institution is in place and We all saw the the debacle that happened uh, with the SAAs this past year, and we saw things play out on social media like crazy. So two questions into this one of, one, how can things like field schools and conferences or professional associations, in this case, handle reports of of harassment better uh, so that they can actually have a safe environment during these conferences, or at least one that promotes a safe environment? and one for networking and learning and all the things that's supposed to be.
0: So one thing I thought I remembered, and this either is an actual loophole of their code of conduct or a a conversation that was had afterwards that is just a general loophole with codes of conduct, is you might have for online registration in advance of a conference, and I know the AAA is going to have this soon, the AAPA has this, it's usually like you have to check a box agreeing to abide by their code of ethics. And also usually there's an additional thing saying like, I will not, you know, I abide by the sexual harassment policy or something like that. And you can have to check that. That's, this is something a lot of places are moving towards. You have to check that in order to be able to register online. What happens to, as in, as happened with the SAA case, someone is registering on the day of in person. Mm. They're already there. They're registering in person. Is there any box they have to check before they can hand you a check? Right. So that's an easy loophole for folks who know that they would get dinged if they, tried to register online ahead of time, they can just register in person on the day of. So if you have on-site registration and you haven't already thought through how to handle that loophole, that's going to be a problem. The other thing that to handle these reports and think about these kinds of problems, one of our main findings for the 2017 article, um, our qualitative data, is that you can have policy all you want, but if you do not have clear consequences tied to those policies, it doesn't matter. So we What we found is that of the sort of across 26 respondents, we coded 55 discrete field site experiences that people described. And what we ended up doing is sorting those 55 discrete experiences into three bins. Either rules were absent or ambiguous, or rules were present, but there were no consequences or enforcement of those rules. And then the third condition was there are rules and the rules are enforced. Now, what was interesting is that both the condition where there were no rules and the condition where there were rules but no enforcement were effectively identical in terms of how much harassment seemed to be happening, the kinds of negative experiences folks were happening. It was really only in the field sites where folks were describing places where rules not only existed but were enforced, where people could say either did, had wonderful stories to share where nothing particularly negative happened, or they were able to say, yeah, when I encountered this problem, here was the way that this was enforced or this there were consequences for the person who was causing harm or we had a conversation or whatever. So it's really nice to have policy. I think that's a really great first step for anybody. But if you don't have a real conversation about and tie it to enforcement, then it doesn't really do anything. And you don't have to think of it in a punitive criminal justice system way. You can, you can have an enforcement system that is restorative, right? You can have one that's about if both parties agree to have a conversation and discuss the kind of harm that was caused and discuss what the path forward would be and what how, what does really, you know, what does responsibility taking really look like? What do appropriate consequences look like? How do we center the victim? You, know, you can have you can have a process that has all of that in place. It doesn't have to be someone does something wrong, you kick them out.
1: Mm-hmm. You
0: can have gradations, but you can also create like informal opportunities for talking and making sure you center victims needs.
1: that's great. And I think that's really helpful advice. And that was definitely one of the recommendations from NAS is, yeah, policy, but you might want to try to enforce said policy. Uh, (laughs) But I want to circle on back to in those recommendations was more civility training. And I'd like you to describe what that is and then also this workshop that you've put together. And I can't quite remember when it's running, um, but that it is.
0: It is running and I'm turning and looking. So I get the dates right. It's running October 17th and 18th. And just to plug it for a second, Please visit incivility.beckman.illinois.edu if you'd be willing to put it in the show notes. I would really appreciate it um, because that's where you can find out all about it and register. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about it as a way of talking about this question of incivility training. So incivility is this term that's kind of, that means a lot of different things to different people. Incivility in the organizational psychology world means very simply rude behaviors of ambiguous intent. So like if I'm always stealing your mug at work to to drink coffee, even when you say, hey, that's my mug. Uh, I'd love to use it for once. Can you stop using it? But I keep doing it even after you said it. Or I'm always leaving you off the email or I'm never inviting you out for lunch, but I'm inviting the other three people in your office out for lunch. These kinds of rude behaviors that add up over time and feel kind of crappy, but aren't I'm doing this to you because you're a woman. I'm doing this to you because you are black, right? Like there's no, you can't tell the social identity underpinning. So that's like the organizational psych definition. Then there's the critical studies definition, which talks about incivility as a form of resistance, right? As a form of pushing against people in power and speaking truth to power. So those two definitions clash quite a bit because administrators love to invoke talking in civil ways and being civil when people of color, white, uh, you know, women and men of color, uh, white women, gender diverse folks, marginalized folks of varying identities try to speak truth to fa- power in an academic setting and say hey maybe you should you should like not fire people for saying things you don't like or hey maybe you should do something about the hate speech that keeps happening on our campus since the Trump election so there's this invocation of we should be nice to each other when it's being used as a tool of resistance so we're tr- what i'm trying to do is create a workshop where we can have a real conversation about that about the ways in which incivility is actually something that is used Against marginalized folks of communities in multiple ways. One, to tone police them, and two, to actually act that way towards them in a way that's super problematic. So, one thing is, I just hope people choose to come to this conference. We even have support for folks. If you're from a small regional or community college, if you identify as being from an underrepresented group in the sciences, please register and just put zero for what you're going to pay and mark a little checkbox saying that you want the additional funding to help to help you get there. But one of the things that has emerged from this literature, both the National Academies and elsewhere, is that there's a lot of resistance to this idea of doing civility training, even though there's a growing research body to suggest that civility training or respect training is a really great way to head off, not just in civility, but sexual harassment, racial harassment, etc. So the question is, how can we talk about again, since I can swear here, how to not be assholes to each other, right? Like, what would it take to actually have a conversation about, are the sciences really enhanced by us being assholes, or are they impoverished by the ways in which we act like assholes? And what would it look like to create a new science, a new way forward, where we improved our sense of belonging, we improved our inclusion, we made science feel bigger, rather than constantly gatekept and made it feel smaller. And so for me, I think there's a really interesting conversation to be had where we figure out how to use these types of training opportunities in a way that reminds the dominant folks and the folks in power, how to not abuse their power, how to think about their coercive, coercive power and protect people from it, and how to imagine a different kind of science where, where it was about, again, like figuring out how to make more people understand that they all belong and that science is one way of knowing, but it shouldn't necessarily be privileged always over other ways of knowing. And I think that that would really, it would make us that more people could feel like they could have a home in science.
1: This might be like way too early to ask you this. So you're doing this conference for the civility training. Is this a show you're thinking of taking on the road and offering it as a workshop at other institutions? Or is that like, again, way too early to ask this kind of question?
0: I have done some short workshops, but just one hour long workshops to help people think about how to create a more inclusive science. So that is something that I do. And you can call me up and hire me to do that if anyone's listening and would like to. And so I do take the show on the road in a limited way and I would love to do it in a larger way. I have a version of, we call this we call it the Inclusive Lab Leaders and this is through 21 century scientists that Christopher mentioned before. And uh, so Inclusive Lab Leaders, we before we came up with that name, we called it anti-asshole training when we were just designing it. <laughs> we just did, because I was just like, I just want to have people stop being such assholes to each other, how do we do that? So we piloted it this spring For faculty and some staff, and then we're doing a trainee version this fall, and then in the spring again back to doing faculty-staff. So we're trying to create safer spaces that organize by rank so that, you know, grad students feel safe talking about their experiences, faculty feel safe talking about theirs. So that's why we're doing them separately. The arc is first on sort of inclusion 101, how to lead or be part of A values engaged lab or research group. The second part is on navigating power. And for faculty, it's about protecting others from your coercive power. For grad students, it's not obviously going to be quite on that as much. Another is on the gift of conflict, how to learn how to engage in healthy conflict. And the last is creating sustainable systems to support us in continuing to do this work. And then um, the hope is that once we sort of get both of these four part trainings up and running, We'll be able to do refreshers that anyone can go to that's just sort of like a one-time two-hour thing every fall. So that's an in-house University of Illinois thing that the Beckman Institute has very generously supported me in doing. And I'm not the only one who runs the training. I, I don't consider myself an expert. I consider myself a facilitator of amazing experts. So I bring great people together and we all do this work together. Another anthropologist, Rip and Molly, has been working on this project with me. Then the dream, you know, NSF, if you're listening, I plan on applying to you soon about this once we get our first round of data together. But 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 we would really like to do an an inclusive lab leader summer camp, like a Mm week-long summer camp that anyone can come to. So that's the dream, is to do it here every summer and have faculty be able to come. Or maybe we do a tiered faculty grad where they're apart and together at various moments. Again, because I think it's important they have safe spaces without without each other. (laughs) But some kind of like week-long camp so that new and returning PIs can actually learn how to create a more innovative, productive lab space, which, you know, again, the science shows that the more inclusive you are and the less of an asshole you are, actually the better you get out of the people who work for you. So folks who really think, well, no, I'm going to lose my edge if I'm somehow nice to my people now, it turns out actually you're not getting the best out of your people. So whatever amazing things you're accomplishing by being jerks, you're probably accomplishing only a fraction of what you really could if you would be respectful towards the people who work for you.
2: I won't go crazy, but since I mentioned it and then you reiterated it, and I think KB Lee, your student, is one of the first who told us about 21st century scientists, which blew my mind. I'll mm-hmm. just be honest. When I saw it and I was thinking I must have run across it right when I became involved with the AAAS Leschner Fellowship, and the idea is um, integrating public engagement into the academy in ways that we're rewarded and incentivized for our work which is exactly what that program does. Basically, what seems to happen is every idea that you have had, we have taken and immediately gone to our departments because we have departments that allow us to do that and implemented them. And I'd love it if more people knew what 21st century scientists was and how that came to be. And then, I mean, we're, we're talking about your public engagement, but you're a badass you know, reproductive health research scientist as well. And we know about that work. And I'd like to hear about how your public engagement and not being an asshole have made you a better scientist and what it's done for you.
0: Sure. Thank you. Uh, I mean, first, I would say I'm still often an asshole. Like this training is to make me less of an asshole, too. Like we've all been trained up <laughs> in, in this world and in this soup of like, this is how you treat people in order to get ahead, and I would say that this is about me trying to undo things in myself as much as anybody. So I never pretend that I am in any way better than anybody when it comes to this. And every training I go to that I'm not leading myself, I am taking a lot of notes. Like I have learned from a lot of my colleagues over the course of the last year as we've been putting these trainings together and running them. So just, and not that you're necessarily saying this, but just to be clear, I do not consider myself on a pedestal on this in any way. And I'm someone who's continuing to learn and grow about these things in a big way. 21Sci mm-hmm. um, was something that came about because... One of my friends who is a veterinarian and then was coming here for a PhD in animal sciences, she and I were SCICOM friends. Like we did a lot of science communication stuff. We went to science communication conferences and we're friends there. And then she came into town and she happened to hear about this focal point grant, which is a grant you could get. I don't remember how much, but it's a small pot of money, like $14,000, or something kind of random that you can get through our grad college to do something that enhances grad education. And we were thinking about our grad interests and um, how can we, you know, is this a grant we could apply for and try to do something to improve sort of the SciComm community here? And, and again, to, to make science bigger by showing people there are ways, not just in terms of you can do more public engagement, but that like there is room in science for people who care about society. <laughs> There's room in science for people who have different types of identities and lived experiences. So that was really important to us. And we pulled a few other people into the grant and we were lucky enough to get it. And That's how we started. We started by creating a group that ran a yearly workshop and developed a certificate program for postdocs and graduate students to enhance their skills beyond just, you know, like their laboratory and research-based skills, but their ability to communicate, but also their ability to be more inclusive. So our trainings were not just like how to use Twitter well, though we have done those. We also include things like you know, like how to be more aware when you're speaking to a diverse audience about how to engage them in your work, you know. So just again, ways that we were really focusing on inclusion and equity, um, not just like SciComm for fun. Um, So that was sort of the first step, and once we got that underway and official, that gave us room to say, okay, now that we've kind of got that up and running and we fulfilled the promise of that grant, let's see if we can get more people to get excited in us trying to make this bigger and like involve faculty, and start to think about what do people, like, if, if our goal is to make science bigger, what do people actually need to start doing differently? How does the incentive structure need to start, start being different? And that kind of stuff. And that's what got us to inclusive lab leaders, to the incivility workshop, and things like that. So the incivility workshop, so most, a lot of our work is funded by the Beckman Institute, and the the last dregs of our graduate college fund. Um, and then the incivility workshop is NSF funded.
2: And you've addressed this, but I want to drill down a little bit on something like that I could take away right now and do as grad director, someone with in a position where I can help my grad students like right now, like what advice for a department of anthropology uh, would you give for us in terms of making a statement on harassment or code of conduct or policy in the department?
0: First thing is I'd start holding a lot of town hall meetings if you aren't already you know, just get in front of your grad students and show them that you really want to listen a lot. And they might not trust, again, you might already be doing this, but for folks who aren't, that's the first thing is just get in front of them a lot. You want to hear what they want you to do because we're anthropologists, right? What we design as solutions are locational and contextual. They're not going to be a one size fits all. Now from the particular issues that emerge from what your grad students want, they might, you know, things that have emerged in our department is they wanted a survey. They, and there were some other changes, there, some other things that they've wanted. We now have sort of a field work locker of things that like reusable items that people can share to sort of lower the cost of the materials you need sometimes to go do fieldwork. We also now have a food locker just to sort of address food insecurity issues These are, of course, in certain ways, band-aids to, you know, to broader issues, but they're a way of immediately addressing issues. You know, I wouldn't necessarily say every department should now go have a field work locker and a food locker. What every department needs to do is figure out what are the locational, contextual issues that their grad students are facing and how can you listen to them and hear them and implement what they're asking you to do. The other thing I would think about is we all know who the problems are, right, in terms of the faculty. And in terms of grad students' peers, right, there's a much higher incidence of peer harassment than there is of vertical harassment, generally speaking. And so, I mean, that's maybe less true for field work, to be honest, but across most other workplace environments, peer harassment is, is much higher. So if we know who the problems are, do we ever do anything to head them off? Like, what are informal conversations that we can have with that one faculty member who always hires tons of students, and then they all leave their lab? The grad director, this is a job that I, <laughs> I am probably going to have next. And this is probably the part that I will be the most scared of doing is having to have those conversations and say, hey, when grad admissions roll around, um, we need to talk about the fact that you don't get a new student this year because you've uh, scared away every single one you've had for the last six years. And they've all come to me and they don't think you should have any more students. Right. I think the other thing is, and I can, I've shared these before and I'd be happy to share them again for your show notes or something. I do a values engaged Sort of training it's uh, another you could uh, almost a very similar version is in brene brown's book dare to lead you could just use hers you don't have to use the one i do but i really think that each organization really needs to decide what its top one or two values not eight values like you, whenever you walk into a workplace and they're like here are 22 values what happens when you come up across an issue where those were two of those values are in opposition to each other mm. right like what if financial security and integrity are up against each other because you're facing a possible legal battle. And if you decide to say, let the perpetrator keep perpetrating because you know that person will sue your ass if you try to do anything about it, is in opposition to your desire to have integrity, right? Like that comes up all the time. But if you have both those values and they are both equal in this like weird, swishy definition, then you're never going to make the right choice. You're always going to make the fear-based choice. So what are, you know, like our lab, we've done this exercise Our two values are justice and growth. And so we talk about them all. They come up all the time when we're making decisions because we're like, wow, this would really foster our value of growth. But that doesn't mean I think that's the two values all labs should have. You know what I mean? We've done the work of deciding as a group what that means for us. And then we've also done the work of deciding what that means in terms of values and expectations and how we're going to hold each other accountable. So those are the kinds of things. Again, those aren't policy, right? Those are crowdsourced. Those are ways that we're engaging as a group. Those aren't me going to my students and saying, I've now decided this is what our values are or this is what we're now going to do in terms of expectations. This is something that's that we've done together.
1: I think a lot of good advice has been provided. I think a lot of sobering comments have been made about like, Yeah, the cynical answer of what to do is is very dependent upon the context in which you're in. But these are the things we need to talk about. And one, Chris has done it. But I also want to thank you for the extreme mental and emotional labor that goes into this work, as well as like you just said, the empirical labor, getting the numbers out there. So you don't just hear people say, oh, this is a one off situation. Um, So thank you for leading the charge on this Issue that affects every single one of us. Even if we have not been harassed, we have been affected by a hostile environment. Um, oh, sure. So, Kate, thank you so much for being on. Uh, if people want to tweet at you or any form of contact, how can they do that?
0: The easiest is through Twitter. I'm on Twitter as Kate Clancy. I also have my own podcast called Period Podcast. And so you can find that obviously wherever podcasts are uh, downloaded. Um, but you can also find me as Period Podcast 2 on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, my website's KateClancy.com. My lab website is clancylabs.com. And we are hiring right now. We would really like to have at least one new grad student coming in this next fall. So keep an eye out for uh, University of Illinois deadlines because we would really, really love to take a new student into our lab right now.
1: That's great. Chris, how can people get a hold of you?
2: I have many of those similar social media things, but I'll go with at Chris underscore L-Y on Twitter.
1: And I am at Kara Akebach on Twitter. This has been the Sausage of Science. Please follow us, like us, share us, and spread all the good news. Thank you all so much for listening.
2: And thanks for Caroline Owens for making us all sound good and the Human Biology Association for sponsoring this podcast.
1: As well as the American Journal of Human Biology.